Everyone doing well? Everyone's good, right? Good. Hey, I hope you guys are enjoying um, Romans so far, if you've been coming. If you've never been here before, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible, and we go through them chapter by chapter, line by line, word by word, and just kind of break them down. And um, if, you've never, if you've never heard anyone teach Romans, Romans is a letter written from a guy named Paul uh, to a church in, in, shockingly enough, Rome, and um, made up of, of both a lot of Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Greeks, Romans, and um, Christianity was new, so there was still a lot of confusion on how they are to live and how they're to, to, to live in a world that was not uh, following Jesus and, and in a very evil culture and a very evil empire, the Roman Empire. And so that's what this letter is about. And if you haven't been with us, we were in chapter five last week, and we've been talking a lot about faith. And faith is not just believing in, it is relying on, obeying, being um, completely trusting and being dependent on God. And so the question we talked about last week is we, we're honest. If you've never been here, we're an honest church. It's, it's uh, maybe not always the, the funnest place to be, but, but um, that's my fault. That's not you. Uh, but we're honest. And it's hard to move forward unless we're honest. And so last week we were honestly asking, do we depend on God for everything? Do I trust him with my marriage, with my money, with my future, with my decisions, with, with where I live? Do, do I completely depend on him? Do I get my affirmation from him, my love from him? Do I get my, my identity from him completely, right? That's what we talked about last week in chapter five. This week, we're in chapter six, because that, um, that comes after five. Uh, we're gonna be in chapter six, and this is one of my favorite chapters in Romans. I, I love it. You can almost sense when Paul is writing this that he was kind of on the balls of his feet. He was excited. It's a very passionate chapter. It's, 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 it's preaching. It's, it's very, very powerful because it, he's talking about, Paul is talking about the, the experience and the transformation of being saved and how we're no longer what we used to be. He's gonna say it. I'm gonna read it to you. That we are now living in a newness of life. We're, we're different than we used to be. So from a guy who used to go around persecuting and killing people, right, Paul, and then to have the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus Christ brought him, you can, you can understand why he's so fired up about this. We're not what we used to be. And that's going to be his argument today. Now, here's the thing about that. With that, if we claim to be different and saved, it means that we display that difference and that salvation in how we live. And if we don't, Paul would say, maybe you're not saved, <laughs> Maybe something hasn't happened to you. But, so we're going to ask ourselves today, if we believe in the Bible, and, and, and I hope you do, and if you don't, I hope you're looking for the truth. I'm going to read you the truth today. That if we're here today, and if the Bible says that we can be permanently changed and set free, again, we have to be honest. Do we honestly believe that? Do we honestly believe that? Okay. Do we believe that we are new creations in Christ? And uh, if not... I hope by the end of today that you'll be persuaded of that, okay? So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Has everything I'm gonna say in there? We're gonna start off real strong with a creepy picture of a skull. So, uh, and you got the notes, so you, know, you can go ahead and read through those, and if, if you don't like those, you can leave before I, I get started. Um, so <laughs> I told myself, Corey, turn the sarcasm meter down today. It was real bad at the seven last night. They don't record me on Saturday, so I just have the freedom to just bleh, all over the place. And that happened last night, and I'm like, I probably shouldn't do that on Sunday. Anyways, you got the notes in front of you. <laughs> got the notes in front of you. That's everything I'm going to say in there. Everything will be on the screens. Um, if you have the Experience Community app on your phone, I don't know why you wouldn't, but if you have that, you can look up. Uh, it has all the sermon notes and the scripture. You can follow along. Um, if you have an old school copy of the scripture, we're in the New Testament. We're in the sixth chapter of the sixth book of the New Testament. We'll go through it pretty quick today. It's pretty straightforward, pretty simple, not hard to understand, but exceptionally important, okay? Except, and let me tell you what's gonna happen today, just so we're all up front with each other. A lot of modern Christian views are gonna be heavily challenged by none other than the Bible. And so we believe in the Bible and, and, and so today, some, some things that we say and some things that we do are going to be really pushed up against, not by me, by the Word of God. So it, it, we'll have fun today, I promise. You're, 
You're not going to hate life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. Let's pray. Let's jump into the word and um, let's see where God takes us, okay? Father, Lord, I love you. God, I love this church, Lord. Uh, I love the people in this room, people watching, God. We, we are family, Lord. By, by your word, it says that we are family. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. I pray that you keep your hand on us today, God. I pray that your word encourages us, inspires us, challenges us, corrects us, God, just makes us think deeper. I pray, God, that we're blessed by the words that we talk about today, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you keep your hand on all of our campuses, all the different churches churches in the counties where our churches are, God, that you bless those other churches as well, Lord. I pray that everything we do today, that it honors you and that it blesses you, God, and that it makes you proud and that our study honors you and your word. And I just pray that it touches our heart today, God. Lord, let us be honest with you. Let us be honest with ourselves. Let us be honest with each other, Lord, and uh, let us move closer to you, Lord. We pray all these things, God, in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is a letter. It reads like a letter. I'm going to go back. Uh, We'll read a little bit, and then we'll kind of break it down, and we'll see what God says to us today. Okay, here we go. Paul says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we may too walk in a newness of life. For we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died, that means baptism, is freed from sin. Now, if you have not been here, the gospel that that Paul brings is that we are saved by God's grace through faith. There is nothing. If you are in this room and you've never heard about Jesus, let me tell you some really, really good news. There is nothing that you and I can do to earn salvation. Absolutely nothing. We are saved by simply believing in what Jesus has done, and by his grace, we are forgiven of our sins, and we get to go to heaven, right? Salvation. We have had no part in that. So Paul has been preaching this. We're saved by grace through faith. And he anticipated what what they would respond to. They they go, well, if there's nothing we can do to be saved, why don't we just go on living the way we're living? If God is gracious, I can just keep sinning because God's grace just multiplies. And Paul goes, absolutely not. That is not the way it works. We cannot say that we have been changed and delivered and continue to live and the filth that God pulled us out of, that's not the way it works. And Paul looked at them and he said, the reason why you keep going back to that is you have forgotten the identity that you have taken when you choose to be a Christian. So he says, how can those set free from sin still live in sin? And Paul is going to spend the rest of this chapter talking about that we have died to sin, we have been reborn in Christ, So the way that we used to live should be gone. What does that mean? Man, guys, pardon me today. I'm going to preach in church. Just bear with me. That means that our post-conversion self should look dramatically different than our pre-conversion self. Now, here's the most important thing I'm going to tell you today. I'm going to say it over and over and over again. This doesn't mean perfection. It means direction. We are not going to be perfect but we should be moving closer to a perfect God. And the closer we get to a perfect God, naturally we move further and further away from evil and sin. That's the way it works. And so as we move closer to him, we move further away from sin. Therefore, our lives look dramatically different. And Paul goes on to say that you're dead to sin. Well, hold on a second. I have a problem because I still mess up in sin, right? I'm sure there's two or three of you in this room that that have slipped up and sinned as well. And so Paul asks, though, are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized unto his death? 
We had a baptism at the last service. The reason why you get put underwater is that it's symbolic. It is symbolic of you getting put into the grave. The old you is dying, and when you come up out of the water, you are a new person. Not perfect, but your direction has changed. Now, our obedience in baptism is similar to Jesus's obedience to God when he got on the cross. We crucify our old selves just like he was crucified on a cross for our sin. But after that, our sinful nature is dead. It is no longer in control of our lives. So because we have willingly chosen to kill the old self, now we get to experience what life really is. We have laid down the old self, our ways, our path, our desires, what we want, and we have now picked up the things that God wants, and we have started the pursuit of God. And so baptism is a sign of that. When you get baptized, that's you saying to the world around you, I am getting off of my path, and I am getting on God's path. And when we do that, Paul says, now we walk in a newness of life. How do we do it? By the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead after three days is the same power that gives us the ability to live a life that honors God. And all of that begins when we submit to God. We hate that word in our culture because no one's going to tell me what to do. But it is when we lay down our lives and say, I'm following you. You're in charge, God. We lay down everything. And that's when this walk towards righteousness, that means goodness, living the way God wants us to live, that's when that begins. Now again, here's the problem with all of us. Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived, put it in very, very graphic detail. He said, we are like dogs that continuously go back to our vomit. I have a very cute seven-pound multi-poo named Charlotte, and she's a dog. I love her probably more than I should. I love her a lot. And I've seen her vomit and go back to it. And I'm like, Charlotte, you're not to be like the other dogs, right? You're better than this. You have a pink collar. You're cute. Don't. But she's a dog. But we are similar in the fact that what has happened is, is when we give our life to Jesus, we have expelled the things that are toxic in us, sin. But what we tend to do is we go back to these things that we have expelled and we ingest them again. And Solomon said, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And Paul is saying, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And the argument that Paul is saying, this is so practical. He's basically saying, if the old ways work, if the old ways were working for you, why did you expel them? If, if your sin, if your addiction, if your sex, if your drugs, if your partying, if it worked, why in the heck are you in this building this morning is what Paul would say. Why are you here? Why did you get baptized and take on a new identity if your old ways are still attracting you and you're still going back to it? It doesn't make any sense. And if you're in here, and, and like me, I've gone back to my vomit before. I have walked back into Egypt. I have gone into places that I shouldn't go. But we have to be reminded, even longer, the, the longer we're Christians, we have to be reminded of the ditch that God pulled us out of. I hope none of us forget the ditch that we have been pulled out of. Yeah. And Paul says, that didn't work for you the first time. Why do you think it would work for you the second time? And that's why Solomon says it's like dogs. It's like dogs that go back to the very thing that their body expelled. It doesn't work. Because... Our identity is different. I love verse six. I actually use this in our baptisms le baptism lessons. He says, your old self was crucified. This brings up a huge theological problem with Christianity. This is the first one we're gonna, gonna talk about. I hate when Christians do this. Whenever I hear a born-again Christian say, we're just old, dirty, rotten sinners. No, you're not. Did, do you not think Jesus' blood did anything? It says, I'm going to show you at the very end of this lesson, when we become followers of Christ, we're not staying dirty, wretched sinners anymore. That's not our identity. God died on a cross. Jesus died on a cross to deliver us from that identity, that we can be made white as snow, pure and white as wool, the book of Isaiah says, that this is not who we are. Sin's power over us has been rendered powerless. We're no longer enslaved to that. That doesn't mean that we live perfect lives. Remember, not perfection, direction. 
but sin does not mark my lifestyle. I may slip up. That's why I go back to Jesus, ask for God to forgive me, move away from that sin. And the further I move away from sin, the less frequently I commit sin and the holier I grow in my relationship with God. I'm just a dirty, broken sinner. Wrong. That is theologically inaccurate according to the Bible. You are not what you used to be. So we need to change our verbiage. The bottom line of what Paul is saying is this. If you want to live, you have to die. I love that. That means that we have to be humble. That means that we have to live repentant lives. That means that when we do mess up, we feel a general remorse for it. When we go back to God and we say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm going to take the steps I need to to move away from those things. And God will give us the strength. He will give us the strength to, to move away from temptation. He will give us the strength to live the lives that he wants us to live. But we have to willingly crucify self. We have to willingly put our desires aside, our wants aside, and we have to choose to pursue the things of God. And if we do this, we can find peace. We can find joy. We can find contentment. Life is better. From skulls to flowers. We're moving in the right direction, guys. Here we go. <laughs> now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's where it gets personal. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. So if we have faith in Jesus, that means we live with him. That means we spend time with him. Here, here's groundbreaking news for Christianity. If we claim to follow Jesus, that means that we have to spend time with Jesus. That means we pray, we read the Bible, we hang out with other Christians. That's called church. Those are three fundamental components of living with Jesus, that we spend time with him. And when we spend time with him, we change. That's why the Bible says, Bad company corrupts good morals. What the Bible is basically saying is, if you hang out with bad people, you're going to end up doing bad things. By that same logic, if you hang out with God, you're going to start acting more like God. You're going to start doing things that are honorable to God. And we use fancy words in church sometimes. They're kind of scary, like sanctification. <gasps> what does that mean? I have to have a PhD or an MDiv to understand that? You don't. It is very simple. All sanctification is, is that we change to look more like God. And as we change to look more like God, God can then use us to go show other people how good he is. That's all sanctification is. This happens both instantaneously when you give your life to Jesus, and then it happens more and more as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. And so like I said, we grow to be more like Jesus because we spend time with Jesus. We grow in confidence as we spend time with Jesus, not because we have done anything good, because the God who has done everything perfect is my friend, my father, the one that, that, that is my savior. And I grow in confidence because I have a relationship with him and what he has done. And this all goes back to faith. This is why, this is why we run to quick fixes and silver bullets in our society. Because when it boils down to it, a lot of people, even ones who claim to be Christians, do not believe that God loves them and that God wants the best for them. Let me, let me tell you what that means in practical terms. When life hits us like a ton of bricks, if we don't have a tight relationship with Jesus, we go smoke a joint, we get drunk, we look at porn, we go have sex, we cram you know, a whole box of like cupcakes in our mouth, whatever we do. Because this gives us a momentary fix of feeling good. 
The problem with all of those things is, is when that time is done, we feel like garbage, correct? So listen, it's not that Jesus doesn't want you to feel good. He does want you to feel good. But what Jesus wants is he doesn't want all the guilt and shame and remorse after those initial moments of feeling good, that five minutes of looking at porn, and then the two weeks of feeling like garbage after you've done it. God wants something better for you. He doesn't just want to put a Band-Aid because that's all getting high and drunk does. It doesn't alleviate a problem. It just makes you forget about it until you sober up. God says, I want to get, pardon me, to the root of it. I want to get to the source of it and eradicate the problem so you feel good forever. Not just for the 10 minutes that you have engaged in this act, but we don't believe that. We believe the act will solve the problem. Working out real good for society right now, eh? And so God wants something better, but you have to believe that God wants something better for you. You have to believe that God's not against sex. He just wants you to have one, one, one partner forever. So you don't have to worry about diseases. You don't have to worry about unwanted pregnancies. You don't have to worry about the ramifications and the feelings of worthlessness that come with being promiscuous. That's what God wants for you. But you have to trust that. You have to trust that God loves you. And when we have that kind of faith, we run to him when life hits us, not to these temporary fixes that actually leave us worse. And so Paul says, therefore, whenever you read therefore in any of Paul's writings, you know he's about to take a turn. So because we have not only been offered this freedom, listen, if you, if you, if you claim the title Christian in here, listen for a second. Not only have we been offered freedom, if you call yourself a Christian, you claim to have experienced the life-changing transformation of the gospel. If you carry the title Christian, you are saying that you are walking in a newness of life. And when we make that claim that we know Jesus, we have a responsibility, I will even use the word obligation, to live in a way that honors our faith. The problem is this. There's a lot of people who claim Christianity, but they live no differently than then they did before they claimed that they met Jesus. And, and please do me a favor. If you're going to live like hell, don't say you're a follower of Christ because that makes you a hypocrite and it makes it really hard for me to get people inside this building. Everyone awake? Okay, so listen, if you're going to claim it, live it. That's what he's saying. I had someone a couple of years ago send me a hateful email. They said, how dare you say that you feel obligated to God? I dare say it because I used to be a drug addict that tried to kill himself three times and God pulled me out of that ditch. Do I feel obligation? Well, yes, I feel obligation. And I looked back at them and I said, and you don't? If you understand the links that God has, go to, has gone to for us, you don't feel a responsibility to live in a manner that honors that? My God, this means that when we mess up, we say we're sorry. This means that when we, are, are, when we realize that something we have done is sinful, we walk away from that. This means that we treat other people with grace and respect and love. Why? Because God has done that for us. If we claim that we have had an encounter with God Almighty, our lives should look differently. And if they don't, Paul would say, there is a serious problem there, a serious problem. And here's another big word that we use in church that sounds big, but it's really very easy to understand. We are to consecrate ourselves to God. That means with every corner of our life, we are to fully dedicate ourselves to Jesus. And because of this, Paul says we're to use our bodies in a way that honors Jesus. This simply means that we are to live out the things of the Bible. Of course, the thing, first thing that pops to mind is sex, right? He says, use the, the, the parts of your body in ways that honor God. That means modesty matters when you're a Christian. That means that if, even if that young woman or young man is being immodest, also as a Christian, we're to control our eyes. Well, she was wearing it. Doesn't mean you're supposed to look at it. Idiot, right? That we are to control our eyes. We're to control how we speak. We're to control what we do with our bodies. We're to control our attitude. That we are to be kind to people. 
that we're to speak lovingly to people. You know what Christianity does really well? We're really good at treating other people like us well. But the Bible says, man, even non-believers do that. The trick is, is loving and showing respect to those that you disagree with. That's the trick. And that's what the Bible calls us to do. We're also to treat ourselves in a way that honors God. What that means is this. The, the reason why we, we are not promiscuous, the reason why we don't engage in sinful things, the reason why we don't send pictures of ourselves that, that are inappropriate, the reason why we don't self-deprecate all the time is because if we are Christians, we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we need to live like we've been adopted by the King of Kings. The Bible says that you're a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. Act like it. Not that we're arrogant and haughty, but we are not worthless. We are not broken. We are not messed up. We have been redeemed by Christ. Walk in a way that honors that. You are valuable. You are important, right? You're not worthless. You're not broken. You're not all these things that we feed ourselves. Treat yourself with some respect and treat yourself the way God looks at you. Basically, how we live matters. Every single corner of it matters. And this isn't just some kind of name it, claim it, garbage, prosperity crap that people try to preach to you. This isn't some kind of uh, metaphysical, just think about it and good things happen. That's new age garbage. That's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is that we need to willingly let God conform our brains to his. We need to willingly let God conform our hearts, that means our emotions, to him. We need to say, God, transform me. Conform me to you. And when we have true faith, we understand that through this word and through the experiences that we have with God, there is fruit to that, good fruit. If you follow the principles of the Bible, even if you're not a Christian in here, I'm gonna be so bold, even if you're an atheist in this room, there are ethical values of the Bible that will absolutely change your life. Treat others as you want to be treated. If everyone did that on earth, regardless of being a believer or non-believer, it would just be a better place to live. In marriages, even if people are not Christians, if you respect your husband and if you love your wife, right? Like it says in Ephesians 5, you're going to have a, you're going to have a much better marriage. There are so many principles. If you stay out of debt, it says people who are in debt are slave to the lender, so don't get into debt to people. If we follow these simple principles, there is fruit that is displayed from that. Of course, you and I as Christians know that that all comes from God. But even in Russia right now, they're teaching classes called biblical ethics because they know the principles of the Bible makes better citizens. Interesting stuff. It bears fruit. Okay, last part. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourself as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced from the things that you're now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. Verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the second half of this chapter is basically the exact same argument as the first half of the chapter. 
Now, why did Paul use the analogy of slavery, right? No one one likes to talk about this. It's a very ugly thing. The reason why Paul uses the analogy of slavery is the majority of citizens in Rome were actually slaves. There were more slaves in the city of Rome than there were free people. So when Paul wrote this, this would have resonated to the majority of people in Rome. So slavery is ugly in and of itself, but he turns it and he says, but we have become slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. So here's what Paul is saying. Slavery in the human sense is always dehumanizing. It is demoralizing. It is degrading and it is forced upon people. Paul is saying that's exactly what sin does to you. Sin dehumanizes you. If you look at sexual culture right now in the United States, we are becoming more and more like animals the more sexualized we become. Paul would say the more we go down the path of sin, the more or or, or the less human you are, the less dignity that there is, the less class that there is. And so sin always leads us to oppression. It leads us to enslavement. It leads us, he says, to death both in a spiritual sense and eventually sometimes to a literal sense. But then he turns it and he says, but we can choose to be a slave to goodness, to righteousness. And when we experience Christ liberating us, we willingly become, like I said earlier, uh, an obligation. We willingly choose to become enslaved to the things of God. I choose to be obedient. I choose to be a servant of my master, Christ. I'm not forced to do it. I've chosen to do it. And so Paul says, though, that when we do not choose to follow God, but we choose to become slaves of impurity, this yields greater and greater lawlessness. Have you not seen this in your society? Not just civic lawlessness. I mean, literally, like no law. But we've even seen moral lawlessness. There is no right. There is no wrong. Do whatever you want to do. And logic alone can tell you that does not work. And so what it yields, what sin yields is sin yields chaos. It yields disorder. And here's the thing. If our God is a God of peace and order, chaos is never of God. Never of God. So we have to ask ourselves, are we people of peace? Now listen, That does not mean that we cannot stand up against evil. Protest is not always evil. In fact, the most famous protester in the United States in our history was a Protestant African-American pastor. And he protested evil in a way that still honored God. It wasn't chaos. It wasn't violence. So we can stand against injustice and still be people of peace and people that honor God. But I want to tell you, if the product of resistance is ever disorder, chaos, and violence, that never lines up with this book. Ever. Again, we're all all still okay, right? Everyone's good, okay? Back in this corner by the door. You guys good? Thumbs up from someone? Okay, good. All right, cool. So the Bible is surprisingly practical. I love when people are like, well, I don't know if the Bible works today. Humans haven't changed much. It still works. So Paul simply asks the question. He looks at these Christians and he says, so did your past moves give you what you wanted? Was the result of your, he asks, was the fruit of the things that you're now ashamed of, was it good? And if so, why'd you walk away from it? Jesus said it like this. Jesus was so profound and yet so simple. (laughs) Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. If you were here for Easter, again, the the happiest Easter lesson ever taught, if you were here for that, (laughs) if you were here for that, uh, you might have been here for it, and probably a lot of people not here because of it, but It says that we will know a tree by our fruit. So what I did is right now, society will tell you we're more intelligent than we've ever been. We're more enlightened than we've ever been. We're more evolved than we've ever been. We're the best we've ever been. And on Easter, I showed you a bunch of stats from all secular sources, right? Most of them universities that say we are more depressed than we've ever been. Our relationships are worse than they've ever been. We're more financially in crisis than we've ever been. And we're more violent than we've ever been. 
So whenever someone says and says, we're better now than we've been, I say, well, let's look at the tree. Because you're saying that this is an apple tree, but all I see is oranges. Jesus says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. So we have to ask, what is our fruit? Well, I think society's going in a way, Corey, in a good way, Corey. Prove that to me. Show me that we're more peaceful. Show me that we, we, we live in a land of civility. Show us that we treat others better than we want to be treated. Show me this. Show me the fruit of that claim. But we also need to ask that about ourselves. If we say we are followers of Christ, what's the fruit? Can you show it to me? It should be visible. It should be demonstrated. And Paul says we produce a better new kind of fruit. Since we have been set free of the bondage of sin, and now we have chosen to be enslaved to God, we produce thing, things that are, that are life. We, produces good, we produce good things, light. And he says there are two pathways. This is where we're going to hang out for the, for the next five minutes or so. Paul says that there's, there's only two avenues. For the wages of sin, that's the wages of humanity, for the wages of sin is death. But he says that the path of God is eternal life. This is it. There is no third option. There is our ways which result in destruction. There are God's ways that result in reconciliation and eternal life. And again, the fruit proves the point. Living without him brings destruction. Living with him brings contentment. And then he says twice, these things result in sanctification. We already talked about sanctification. This means we look and act more like God. Because if we spend time with Jesus, if we choose to follow him, we will not only bear the fruit that this Bible talks about in our lives, we will also think more like him. We will speak more like him. We will treat other people more like he would want us to treat them. What that means is this. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 40 years. You should be growing closer and closer to Jesus every single day that we should be constantly evolving. That's why the sinner's prayer is complete garbage. I hate to step on theological toes today, but that's nowhere in this book. This idea that I was 12 years old at a camp, I said that I'm gonna follow Jesus and I lived like hell. I, I can't tell you how many times, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm hurting your theological feelings, I can't tell you how many times over the last 12 years someone, someone would come up to me. Hey, can you pray for my, for my brother? He beats his wife. He's in jail for, for meth. He's gotten a couple of DUIs, and, and he just randomly walks around like kicking cats. But I know he's saved because he prayed a prayer one time when he was 12. And my response in the most pastorly way I can think is, by what fruit do you think he's saved? Because Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. So if we claim to follow Christ, the life that we live should display that we are moving closer to Christ, not perfect, but moving in that direction. We will not be perfect, but we should be conforming, right? Let's break it down on levels that, that kind of works with all of us. If I say that, life, that, that, that Jesus Christ has transformed my life, but I keep sleeping with my girlfriend, even though I know that it's wrong, I would probably say to you that you don't love Jesus as much as you claim to. I might even go so far to say you're not a Christian because following Jesus is what makes us a Christian. And if we deliberately and willingly live in rebellion to God, we are not following God. Okay. Listen, I'm not here to like condemn you today. That's not what I'm trying to do. I care a lot more about you being saved than I care about your feelings and how you think about me. I care much more about your eternal soul than if you like me or not. And if I tell you the truth and that upsets you, oh, what a jerk. But later down the road, it clicks and you stop living in sin and start honoring God. I'm okay with that. Because you know why? Ultimately, I don't answer to you. I answer to him. And if I tiptoe around the scripture because people have itching ears, I'm gonna have to answer for that for one day. And I don't want to. I don't wanna answer for that. Okay, I hope we're still good. I got like two more slides. <laughs> so 
So the motivation for us wanting to conform to the image of God should be because we love God. Let me tell you, the abuse of grace is not an option for the true believer in Jesus. Do you guys hear me? Well, I know it's a sin, but God is gracious. Paul would say that's absolutely not how you're to live. That is not how you're to live. If you genuinely love him, you should want to do what honors him. So here's the thing. Here's where a lot of Christians get into a web is instead of saying, how close can I get to the one that I claim to love more than anything? We often say, how far away can I get from him without falling off the edge? Do you know what that is? And do you know why I think the argument of Calvinism and Arminianism is stupid? Because if you're constantly talking about how much you can do and still, and still keep your salvation intact, I would say that you probably don't love Jesus that much. It's like if my wife walked up to me and said, do you think we ever could get divorced? I'd say, well, why are you asking that question? That concerns me. When we constantly say, well, do you think we can lose our salvation? I want to say, what are you doing in your life right now that brings up that, that question? Here's the thing. If we are living by the principles of this book, you don't have to worry about going to hell. You don't have to worry about losing your salvation because you're walking in step with Christ. So these arguments lose all validity because it's not about that. If I love my wife, the D word never comes up in our conversations because divorce is not an option for us. We love each other. Do you think we could get divorced? We don't use language like that. And if you have a relationship with God, you don't have to worry about your salvation. It's locked in. It's tight. As long as you have a relationship with him. I think the problem with a lot of us is, is maybe we don't really love Jesus. We just don't want to go to hell. I'm almost there, guys. I promise. <laughs> so we have to ask ourselves today. Has the direction we've gone as individuals, has the direction we've gone as a society, has it given us the quality of life that we desire? Listen, I'm not picking on this person, but I'm going to use her as an example because right now it's the, the example that culture is using as the standard. And, and listen, I don't get up here and, and just talk bad about individuals. It's not what I'm trying to do. This year at the Grammys, right, Cardi B made a statement, big statement. And not only did we give her a Grammy, we awarded her for a song that is unbelievably tacky and vile and, and no Christian should partake in. Not only did we give her an award for that, we say this is actually liberating to women. This is good for women. We took that thought so far that we named her Woman of the Year. Woman of the Year. I'm not knocking on her. I'm knocking on a culture that would idolize those actions and say, young ladies, this is what you need to do. Now, now, hold on. Here's where we're going with this. I'm not just trying to knock someone. We have to ask ourselves the questions. So that right now is the woman of the year in the United States. Cardi B. Someone who basically stripped on the Grammys and we... Let me tell you, is that kind of culture making better fathers? Is that kind of culture breeding stronger, more powerful young ladies? Is that kind of culture creating healthier marriages? Is that kind of culture advancing the cause of women? I have two young ladies in my life, two girls, two daughters, and I want them to know that they don't have to give their, their, their bodies to find value. Their value doesn't come from some man that wants to look at them like a commodity. Their value comes because they're made in the image of Christ. And so I have to ask, has lifting this kind of thing up in our culture, has it given us a better society? Are we better for it? Show me. Show me the statistics that say that young women are having less body images than they did 30 years ago. Show me that stat. Show me the stat that says relationships are better. Show me the stat that claims that husbands are more engaged with their wives than they've ever been. Show me the stats. Prove to me that the road that we are walking is producing the fruit that we want to see in our lives. The problem is, is I don't think some people are convinced that we need a change yet. But if you are in this room, if you are in this room, and maybe you have, you, something has, has triggered today, and you say, I need a change, we need a change. Here is the good news amongst all this, this very intense stuff we've been talking about today. 
The old us can be permanently put to death if we want it. Not, not only can the old self be put to death, a new us can rise and it can thrive and it can be content and we can have peace and joy and we can live fulfilling lives and we can have eternity with God. But we have to be humble and we have to lay ourselves down and choose to get off our path and get onto the path, not of perfection, but of the direction of God. That is available for us today. A newness of life, if we want it. If we want it. Is it easy? No. Will everything happen right now? No, no, there's a process. But you can start walking in the right direction and your life will change and your eternity will change. Now, as I was studying for this, I've read the book of Isaiah, I don't know how many times. And in chapter one, I don't know why this, I'm gonna show you something and then I promise this is it and you guys can go home. God was speaking to Isaiah. These are the words of the almighty God given to Isaiah. Let me read this to you real quick, and then we're going to go. God said to Isaiah, come on, let's settle this. I love that. God says we're going to make a line in the sand. I'm, once and for all, I'm going to say it, Isaiah, and you need to know it. Let's settle this. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. God says right there, let's settle this. I don't care how bad you've, did, how, how bad you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how evil you've acted. If you want it, all of that evil can be forgiven and you will be as white as snow. Let's settle it. That's what he says. It's settled. And then he goes on. He says, if you are willing, if you want it, if you are obedient, you will eat from the good things of this land. God says, let's settle it. If you want it, your old self can die. If you want it, you can be blessed in this life. You can find contentment and peace in this life, and you can be with me for eternity. If you want it, that's settled. And then goes on to say, but if you don't want it, if you refuse and if you rebel against that, God says you'll be devoured by the sword. Do you know what the sword means right there? It means two things. In the book of Matthew, book of Matthew or John, it might be John. When Peter tries to step in front of Jesus and take matters into his own hand, right? He literally got in front of Jesus and he was going to take, take matters into his own hand. He was going to be in control. Peter picks up a sword cuts off a Roman soldier's ear. Jesus picks it up, puts it back on and looks at Peter and he says, those who live by the sword, they die by the sword. What that means is this. In this life, listen to me, please. In this life, if we are not walking down the path of Jesus Christ, we don't need the devil or God to do it for us. We will eat ourselves alive. We will tear ourselves to shreds. All the time we do it, right? People turn on each other and stabbing in the back and we destroy each other. Left to our own devices, we will rip ourselves apart. That is the sword. That's the first context. In this life, you'll fall apart. God guarantees it. The other thing that the sword is talking about right here is if you go to the very back of your Bible in the book of Revelation, it says as all the evil armies of the world are going to wait for Jesus to come back, it says that Jesus parts the eastern sky. He comes in. All the evil armies of the world are waiting to fight him. It's not much of a fight. It says Jesus opens up his mouth and a sword comes out and devours all evil. Do you know what the sword is? It is his word. And what this means in Isaiah, we have two choices. We walk the way of God. It's blessing. It's forgiveness. It's good. It's not easy, but it's good. Or we rebel and life will fall apart here. And one day the word of God will hold us into judgment. The sword will hold us into judgment. And we will have to pay for it for eternity. I'm not trying to scare you this morning. I swear I'm not. But I did want to say this and I felt it all week. There are some people in this room and maybe watching online. You need to get off the fence and you need to settle this. You need to decide, I'm either going to walk my path or I'm going to walk God's path. 
And if we walk God's path, that means we become enslaved to him. We completely lay it all down for him. But some of you need to stop doing this. Oh, I got this sin. You know, I can get drunk on Friday and still make it to church on Sunday. It's not the way God operates. The Bible says, should we sin more so grace can abound? No, no, it's not the way it works. We are to walk in a newness of life. And maybe today, some of you need to settle it. I think God is saying to some of you today, it's either time to walk my path or walk the path that you're walking, but you need to choose. Would you bow your heads with me? Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Carl is up here. If you are in here and maybe you're not a believer, maybe you got questions, maybe you're looking, maybe you're, you're, you, just don't, you just don't know where to go next or what to do, come up here and talk to Carl. He'd love to talk with you. We're not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of people looking for the answers. We're, we encourage that. Come on. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage who would love to pray for you. Anything you may need, if you want to confess a sin, if you want to pray for someone to help you, or if you, if you have a physical need or a family member, whatever you need prayer for. And then the last thing is you have communion in your hands. I say this every week, but I think we forget sometimes. That's not just some juice in a wafer. That's a really, really big deal. The Bible says that if we do not repent for our sin before we take communion, we are taking it as condemnation to ourselves. But here's the beautiful thing. If we, if we can think about it, if we can repent, if we can be honest with the Lord, we can take the body and blood of Jesus and we could be reminded that God loves us, that he has done everything for us, that if we will just have faith in him and choose to walk on his road, we don't have to be perfect, but over time he will bring us closer to perfection. And then one day when we either die or he comes back, we will be perfect and with him forever. That is a promise. But we have to choose. We have to settle this. We have to be persuaded. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I thank you, God, for everyone in this room, everyone watching online. I pray that you keep your hand on us, Lord. Protect us, God. God, I pray that any of us, if we're walking, trying to walk two paths, God, that you let us know that that is impossible. It is impossible to walk both paths, God. We have to choose. So, Lord, be with us, protect us, keep us safe, Lord. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Love you, guys. You're welcome to help yourself.